This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, how has Taylor Swift become arguably the world's biggest music star? It appears the world is now divided into two categories. There are those of us who have heard about Taylor Swift and her success and can maybe sing along to her latest single in the car. And then there are the Swifties. Swifties are the devoted and vocal uber fans of Taylor Swift, who's become one of pop's greatest selling artists and is also now a billionaire. The 33-year-old has taken the music world by storm over the last 15 years or so. She started as a teenage country music artist and is now the most streamed music artist in the world. Her era's tour began in the US this year and it's predicted to become the highest grossing tour of all time, backed up by a new feature film and a lucrative merchandising business. The Dublin leg of that tour saw controversies over the price of tickets as well as issues around the cost and availability of accommodation for the fans in the capital. So to help us today to understand just how Swift has reached this level of fame is Louise Bruton, a freelance journalist specialising in the arts, pop culture and disability rights. Louise, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. I think I have to give myself the title of a Swifty in training as well. Well, I think that makes us evenly balanced so today because I am not a Swifty. So just to start, Louise, can you give us a sense of why Taylor Swift is so fascinating? How does she just go beyond being simply a pop singer? So I think with a lot of the great performers, you can never actually put your finger on it exactly what it is that makes what makes them more kind of attractive than other people. So you can never specifically say, why is Bruce Springsteen as big as he is and not this guy? Or why is Britney Spears as big as she is and not this other person? So there is always just that kind of fascinating mystery to them, that that intrigue. But I think what Taylor Swift started out as and what she is now, it's a very interesting kind of like business progression because that's what she is. She's a big business. Um, And she started as this kind of young, teen, innocent singer songwriter who started out performing in small uh, cafes in Nashville, the Bluebird Cafe, which if anybody ever watched the Nashville TV series, they'd be familiar with the importance of that. And now she is this huge kind of megalith who is changing the way music is being streamed, the way concerts are being um, kind of rolled out. And she's kind of unavoidable. Like we all know, even if you aren't fully aware of her music, you're aware of some of the gossip or some of the drama that has surrounded her career, which I don't think we can, many other artists can say that. Maybe you can say about Madonna. Maybe you can say it about like Britney versus Christina. But many other artists right now, we don't have this level of context towards her personal life that kind of bleeds into her professional career. And professional is one of the words you'd use to describe Taylor Swift, isn't it? Because she has, as you say, an economic machine behind her, but not very many controversies that other artists might have had along the way. And we will look at a little bit later as to why she's re-releasing albums, that kind of thing. But firstly, who is she and what's her background? Okay, so Taylor Allison Swift, (laughs) born December 13th, 1989, which... That sentence alone will probably make you realise why she has an album called 1989, why her favourite number is 13, why she often has 13 written on her hand. So 
this is just a, this is the labyrinth of Taylor Swift that I'm getting into now. It's all Easter eggs. It's all connections. Um, but she was named after the singer James Taylor, which means that music was in her life from day one. Her parents fed a lot of music into her. And she grew up in a town called West Reading in Pennsylvania with a population of just 4,000. And her family is very much part of now the business unit. But to begin with, her father, Scott, he was a stockbroker. Her mother, Marjorie, was a homemaker. And her brother, Austin, um, he's now kind of part of her licensing um, side of things. So he you'll see his credits on a lot of music videos. And one of the fun facts about Taylor Swift is she grew up in a Christmas tree farm, which her father bought from one of his clients. So, you know, this is like the setup of a Christmas rom-com. But as she grew up, she grew, became a big music theater nerd and she would travel around a lot, performing a lot of uh, productions. But like most of us, she fell in love with country music thanks to Shania Twain. Um, and it was then when she watched a Faith Hill documentary that made her realize she needs to move to Nashville, Tennessee. So there was huge support from her family in the early days of her career. And when she was 11, her mother would travel with her to Nashville um, where they would go around visiting different rec- record labels and she would perform um, covers of Dolly Parton's songs and covers of Dixie Chicks, now known as Chicks, uh, songs. But she was rejected at age 11. And that's when she had an incredible thought for an 11 year old is she's like, if um, everyone in the town wants to do what I want to do, I need to figure out a way to be different. Um, So again, with even further support from her family, um, she found a New York based talent manager in 2003. And that's when she developed, had an artist development deal with deal with RCA Records, which is huge. And just to say, Louise, like that is still at the age of 11. This is phenomenal, really. Yeah. And Joe, this is just um, kind of her kind of moxie getting her around. She has she she's only doing karaoke covers of, of big hits. This isn't even her songwriting just yet. But to further her advancement into the country music scene, her father then relocated um, offices to Nashville when she was 14 and the family moved to Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is where Johnny Cash and June Cash lived. And other like it was big country music hub, like all of the big names there. And a very key decision, which I think shows very strange for a child to have this sort of like business eye, um, definitely with the help of her parents. She left RCA because she was afraid of being shelved. And there was a sense that there was maybe a lack of care around her being a child. And she moved to Sony's publishing house, making her the youngest artist ever signed there. And it was shortly after this that she was performing in the Bluebird Cafe and she caught the attention of a very bit important name in the Taylor Swift uh, story is Scott Borchetta. He was originally with DreamWorks Records, but he was about to form his own independent record label called Big Machine Records, um, which would be the home of Taylor Swift albums for the majority of her career. And another key point of the business side of things was that her father purchased a 3% stake in the company for $120,000. Her first album was released in 2006, peaked at number five um, on the US Billboard 200, and it stayed there for 157 weeks, the longest day on the chart for any release in the US in the 2000s. And that's in the US. We didn't even really hear of her by then. So she was huge before she became gigantic, which is a very kind of... um, interesting way to look at it. It's it's under the radar success, but still breaking records at such an early age. This is it. This isn't looking at maybe a good singer being found in the X Factor. She's writing her own stuff from a very early age, isn't she? Writing her own stuff, competing with a lot of people, like the dream for a lot of musicians and performers is to go to Nashville and make it big. Like that's like me saying, I'm going to go to LA and become an actress. And, you know, 
who else, how many other people are saying that? But there was just a lot of drive, a lot of support. Um, she was songwriting from an early stage um, and writing about her true experiences. So a lot of her early music is about being a teenager and having problems in high school with making friends and fitting in and fancying boys and not being fancied back. So she was tapping into this unknown market, which was the country teen market, because we've had her Shania Twain's, we've had her Faith Hills. We... Like there wouldn't have necessarily been a Taylor Swift without Leanne Rhymes, who was um, the youngest teenager, I think, to have a number one in America. They really bridged the gap, didn't they, between exactly. pop and country music? Yeah, and it was seen as maybe a bad thing back then. But I think with Shania Twain specifically, she was making it more normalised to have that country success, but also having that big billboard success as well. So when did her big break come then, Louise, and transforming her from country singer, let's say, to pop star? I do remember she played in Dublin some years ago and you literally could not give the tickets away. So it's a complete 180, isn't it? Yeah, so this this question has layers. <laughs> so there's there's a few kind of key moments. So um, on her 2008 album Fearless, Fearless, she had a couple of big, huge, huge songs called Love Story and You Belong With Me and 15. And Love Story was the first country song to top the Billboard's pop songs chart. So again, this is still... Um, huge success that isn't necessarily crossing over to or Ireland or Europe. But it was when in 2009, when Kanye West interrupted her acceptance speech for winning Best Female Video for You Belong With Me. This was when she became part of this huge dramatic saga. But also it was a lot of people asking, who is Taylor Swift? Why is she winning this award? Why does Kanye West care so much? And people started kind of being familiar with her. And this was a huge turning point in her music because she had a new audience looking at her and she veered a little bit more into pop music. And 2012's Red, that was her first number one album in the UK and also it reached number one in Ireland. And around that time in her life, she was dating Harry Styles, you know, so that was sort of this big cross-Atlantic um, union and like One Direction were obviously gigantic at that stage as well. Um, and it was it was that point as well that she, on that album, she had the song Trouble, which famously has a drum and bass drop in it, which was, you know, uh, it was kind of blasphemy <laughs> in the eyes of, of the country world. But this was her kind of showing that she wanted to branch out. And I think kind of to compare her 2018 Crow Park gigs to now where you, you can't get tickets for love nor money. I think that there has culturally been a big shift in how people enjoy women led or women created music. Like when you look at, say, the success of Barbie, um, even at home, Vogue Williams and Joanne McNally. The success that these things have would not have happened five years ago because there has been a cultural shift. And I think a lot of people are retrospectively getting into Taylor Swift now as a result of that, that maybe people held slightly misogynistic views against her. And people are, she's almost having a redemption time just for the fact that she was a young woman and people weren't always happy with that. Yeah, when you bring in Kanye and the award ceremony, a lot of people, let's say of my vintage, wouldn't have heard of Taylor Swift before that episode and not to waste a good scandal, I guess it did really launch her into another stratosphere. So that might have helped her a little bit along the way. And since, let's say, 2018, we've had a pandemic. There's now TikTok, a captive audience. She's very much stepped into that sort of a space. So has that kind of pushed her along, do you think? How has she handled all of that transition then? The Kanye West saga was a huge kind of cataclysmic um, event that happened in her life. And it spurred on this new level of success, but also spurred on this new level of like oversaturation. So the MTV situation, like that was so big that it even had Barack Obama calling Kanye West a jackass. 
it was it's a very kind of interesting moment and kind of look at how we perceive different artists. So you had a young white woman versus a huge rapper, black rapper, black man. And it was very easy to portray Kanye as the enemy in this situation because he was a grown up and should have known better. But now we look back and we know that he has suffered from a lot of mental health troubles. So, you know, it's very hard to pin who did the wrong thing, who did the bad thing. But we got sick of Taylor during this time because um, there was a song in 2016, Kanye West released a song called Famous and he allegedly, this is where the drama kind of gets complicated and it's a lot of here. He said, she said. So he phoned Taylor Swift to ask permission to name check her in a song. And that line that he cleared with her is, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. And in this phone call, she gave that the green light. She said it was funny. She didn't think it was that offensive. But this was all behind the scenes. So when this was released in public, um, everybody thought that that was him just being, just taking his shot, being being the bad guy again. And he was publicly just shamed and people were turning against him quickly. And Taylor, then when she was accepting a Grammy that year, she seemed to also take a dig at Kanye saying, um, I want to say to all the young women out there, there are going to be people along the way who'll try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. So that would make it seem like she knew nothing about this line. So that's when Kim Kardashian steps in, uh, who was the then, then wife of Kanye. So this was, this was, there would be new evidence coming out on a monthly basis. And it was just like, for people on the receiving end, it was like, who cares? But both of these artists had their reputation on the line. So they both wanted to have the last word. And that's why it got quite exhausting. And I know, Louise, all of these public feuds, paper never refused ink, really. So they do boost the sales and the persona of artists along the way, do they? I don't think they do them too much harm. Doing neither any harm along the way, but it was um, so Kim Kardashian eventually released an edited video of this phone call to prove that Kanye did ask permission for this line. But what Taylor then claimed was the following line is, I made that bitch famous and she never gave clearance for using the word bitch. And that's when it all became very messy because people were calling her a liar. And just to, to show the enormity of Taylor Swift at this time, um, all of her Instagram posts were being um, bombarded with a snake emoji because Kim had won this argument at this stage and had um, the, the she, Taylor Swift was now a snake and everybody was bombarding her Instagram account. And that's when Instagram decided to test out a new feature. And Taylor was the first person to do it to disable comments on Instagram posts. So it was, it was a very influential time, but she also went into hiding um, and so in the lead up to her album uh, Reputation, which was released in 2017, we didn't see Taylor Swift. She disappeared. And this is this was a rumour, but proved to be true. She used to sneak around in a suitcase that her security would carry her out so nobody would see her leaving buildings. And so her dating life was toned down um, and she's she's. Uh, admitted now recently in the the liner notes of 1989, the re-release of that, that she was so sick of the way that she was being judged for her dating life that she then surrounded herself with a kind of a female squad. Uh, that was her own kind of definition of it. And then that also backfired because people thought that she was now becoming like a mean girl. She was in a clique. So she couldn't win. So she disappeared. Why do you think, Louise, these feuds are part of Taylor Swift's story and not so much for other artists? 
So I think one of the main attractions to Taylor Swift was that she was relatable. And but there did come a point in her life where she she's just not relatable now because she's a billionaire. You know, uh, she has all eyes on her and we just can't connect with that anymore. And I think because she was such an important she is such an important voice for for women and girls across the world that maybe she this is me now projecting it. I think that maybe she believed that she was correct in her journey a lot of the time. Like there, there was a, a this, there's one feud I think that really kind of hones in on how she had a lot of learning room to 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 take on. Uh, she had a bit of a spat with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, who were hosting the 23 Golden Globes. And you know everyone's kind of fair game in the jokes at the Golden Globes with the host, especially with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And they made a joke about her love life, and then. Swift then expressed her outrage with a Madeleine Albright quote going, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And Tina Fey then said, oh, it's a shame she didn't take the joke in the crazy and spirit in which it was intended. So it was this thing of like, I oh, know that's I don't think Tina Fey deserves to be in hell. But it was sort of this kind of learning room for feminism that she was doing in this public sphere. Now, if we were all to track our own history with feminism and how we came to learn its importance and what that actually means, we'd all be mortified if it, that was done in a public uh, spectrum, which it is for some people on Twitter, on Instagram and that. But she was doing it on the world stage and she was almost kind of speaking as if she was the underdog in all these situations when in fact she was a powerhouse. And I think that that's what kind of got her got her into a lot of trouble as well. She had a similar spot with Nicki Minaj when Nicki Minaj kind of highlighted that for um, VMA nominations, it was all just white women who were uh, nominated. And she said something like, hmm, you know, all these similarities. And then Taylor seemed to make it out that Nicki was jealous of her success, ignoring the fact that race is a big issue in, in the music world and that black women don't have the same opportunities as white women like Taylor Swift. So that was a big learning curve for her as well. And so it was also part, this is like we were kind of sick of Taylor, of Taylor Swift at this stage. But she then very cleverly took all of this uh, kind of hatred and uh, backlash against her and the learning curves, and kind of the belittling experience of realizing, yes, I was wrong and put it into the album Reputation, which was sort of a revenge album. Um, and it's it's what I kind of I like to compare that album to what she released during um, the pandemic, um, Evermore and, and Folklore. Reputation is the album when you write your frustrations without having a good therapist. Evermore in folklore is when you vent your frustrations when you are deep in the therapy process. <laughs> yeah, when you look at all of these feuds, some of the people she's been involved in feuds with have really come in for criticism from Swift's fans. And her, her fan base, they're known as an iconic, maybe even notorious group of people. Can you tell us who the Swifties are? Swifties are the diehard Taylor Swift fans. Um, you will, a lot of people might think that they're a Taylor Swift fan, but then when they meet a Swiftie, they realize, oh no, I, I don't have a patch on the, on this group of people. So it's a, it's a wide ranging kind of age group because there's so many people who've grown up alongside Taylor Swift. Um, and then there's the elders like ourselves who have kind of leapt on at whatever point. But she is gathering up even younger, younger fans, more online fans who kind of think that 
this um, online kind of way of communicating is the only way of communicating. So Taylor Swift will have to sometimes jump in and tell her Swifties to calm down if they are taking um, too many digs at, say, people who are the subjects of her songs. She did something similar for John Mayer, who is the focus of um, a couple of her songs, uh, very uh, literally a song called Dear John. And she hasn't maybe necessarily given that grace to other artists that are other men or ex-lovers or friends who are the focus of her song. And the power of the Swifties is like one great example. And it's also a great another business example of how Taylor Swift is very smart and savvy and marketing is always kind of at the forefront of what she does. So when she was releasing 1989, her album in in 2015, she was in kind of this long running battle with the streaming services, Apple and Spotify. She's contesting just how much um, money was going towards the 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 artists. And she was speaking on behalf of the the smaller artists, but, you know, she she wanted that money too. Um, so she announced that 1989, which was officially her first pop album, she would not be releasing it on Spotify and as a kind of a protest against the payments to artists. And she would only be released on CD and vinyl. And a lot of people were like, oh no, that's not going to sell at all. That was a risky move, was it? Because really you have to stream these days. Yeah, exactly. We weren't so big into the vinyl revival then as we are now. So people were like, no, she's not going to even sell a million records. And then she ended up selling 1.28 million copies in its opening week. So that was the power of the Swifties. They're like, oh, you think she's not going to succeed? Watch back. We're going to we're going to do this. Um, another incredible more recent example is she is now going out with the NFL player Travis Kelsey. So he before he performs he plays he plays the football um with the Kansas City City Chiefs and she has been attending the recent games I think the season has just begun football's back on and and Taylor has been going to support her boyfriend by being in the audience and the games that she attends the Sunday games that she attends they are now becoming the most watched NFL telecast games um in recent things specifically just when the Kansas Chiefs are playing and then his jerseys his branded jerseys have had a 400% spike in sales since she has attended so this is sort like the dogged adoration that the Swifties have for Taylor they're kind of like oh you're with this guy now we're going to support him but the thing is if that relationship ends what's going to happen to him daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move make sure you're on daft.ie the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland now one thing we've learned about Taylor Swift today is that she's pretty business savvy. So why is she re-recording her albums? She did have a dispute with the record company. Scott Bruschetta, who we mentioned earlier on, he was um, he started Big Machine Records and he decided to sell the, the record label in 2019. And then what happened was he sold it to Scooter Braun, who is the manager of Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, Ariana Grande, other big acts. And she has had sort of like a mini feud with Justin Bieber over the years, which was maybe kind of fueled a little bit by Scooter Braun. So when Scooter bought Big Machine Records, this gave him the rights to all of the master recordings of Swift's old music. So this is all of her music um, from her debut album in 2006 up to 2018's, 2019's Lover. Um, so Taylor Swift still owns the songs. But what happens is if anybody wants to use the material, those songs, they need to ask Scooter Braun's permission and he gets a licensing fee. So she 
gets she gets the royalty credits but any if that music is used again she doesn't get that money so that's that's a huge part of her income huge part of her earnings gone and she wrote in an emotional tumblr post because she's still using tumblr god bless her this is my worst case scenario and but she can sidestep this issue by re-recording these songs so that she then owns those masters and the albums that she's recording will outperform the previous albums thanks to the, to the support of the Swifties and she will not only get the the kind of licensing rights back of those songs she will also have albums that are over 10 years old charting again so it is so clever she's they're released on streaming services cds vinyl and that's like a double a lot of people are buying them on every format because uh, people want to have the physical thing and they want to have the side thing and she has she's also um releasing demos on these on these albums as well unreleased tracks so we're just getting this whole new story of taylor swift um again it's it's incredible it's so smart but it's such a it's an interesting thing because a lot of other artists are actually selling their masters um like bruce springsteen sold his um masters for 500 million dollars justin bieber sold his for over 200 Katy perry sold uh, a portion of her masters for 225 million so when everybody else like it crazy to me i don't understand why they would want to lose the 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 masters there's doing it for huge money, but she's taking it all back in. So it's a huge thing of control and kind of just owning everything that she's ever created. And utilizing the fan base like that, she's pretty good at this. She'd be very good in politics, wouldn't she? Because what she has done is so different to all the legacy cases we would have heard about over the years where really successful artists have lost almost everything to record companies. Is this just how the industry works then? Or was there something nasty going on with this particular case? Um, there was definitely something kind of nastier going on and there still is a lot of it that we don't know. Um, Scooter Braun is, is claiming that we're not getting the full story from, from Taylor Swift. Um, but this is kind of common practice, kind of like we said with Bruce Springsteen just deciding to sell that. It's, 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 but they made that decision, but this decision was taken away from her. And the fact that she does have this long running, um, kind of feud with Justin Bieber, which I think started because he went out with her best friend, Selena Gomez, and she apparently smirked, <laughs> um, at the mention or at the side of Justin Bieber at his uh, thing. And it just escalated. And there was, um, a, a photo that circulated around when this happened where Justin Bieber posted a photo with him and Kanye West and I believe Scooter as well um, with the caption Yo Taylor Swift what's up so it just kind of alluded to the fact that they were all in this um, kind of uh, conspiracy against Taylor Swift which is easy to believe because it you know it, well it's easy to believe on the outside we have no idea how the industry actually works we don't know if this backstabbing is as as realistic as they're making it out to be but it certainly adds to a great narrative in the rise of Taylor Swift well she's clearly not shy of getting involved in any feuds and she's plenty of enemies but you really wouldn't know what the backstory was uh, there's probably a bit of jealousy isn't there that she's done so well so when you look at these albums that she's re-recorded Louise has she changed the songs in any way are they any good what are the Swifties saying yeah, okay, the Swifties are very happy and the the big kind of I suppose kind of introduction to this was the re-release of um All Too Well. So there's All Too Well the original version which is just under like 5 minutes and then there's 
all too well Taylor's version. So every every re-release is now called Taylor's version. And there's a Taylor's version, which is the same length of time. And then there's all too well Taylor's version, the 10 minute version. So this was just, this is a song that is allegedly about her, uh, her romance with Jake Gyllenhaal. And it just reveals so many new layers to that relationship or that alleged relationship and to her uh, kind of difficulty with being in love and being so young and it has extra verses and it's beautiful it's um she performed it I believe at the Grammys and it's really it's a song that has taken on a whole new life so that is the biggest um kind of I suppose diversion from the original where she's just she's basically just created a kind of a masterpiece of a song but um Another big change is she's got a song from Better Than Revenge, which was released in 2010, which is about um, a actress getting with one of her ex-boyfriends and she wasn't too happy about it. So the original line was, she's better known for the things that she does on the mattress. So that is now perceived as an anti-feminist line. And the new version, Better Than Revenge, Taylor's version, that line has been rewritten to, he was a moth to the flame, she was holding the matches. And now I have a particular interesting insight into how that uh, lyric, I, I DJ as part of the Swift Again events in Dublin. And when Better Than Revenge is played, you hear the original version being screamed about three octaves higher than the recorded version. Because at Swift Again, we only play the Taylor's version of songs. So the Swifties know all of the backstories then? They know all of the backstories. And like when they're singing along with songs, they'll sort of like ad lib different bits. Like it's it's really, really, it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so if you're going to the gig, you are, and you're just a kind of a, a layman's fan of Taylor Swift, you're going to hear all of these additional chants, um, additional lyrics, different cheers for different reasons and you're going to realize oh no I actually know nothing about this woman so it's it's fascinating but with the rest of the songs um BuzzFeed actually have this incredible breakdown of just how much the songs are the same or how much they've uh, changed um so they'll have things like speak now is more acoustic never grow up is louder mean is sadder you are in love is happier style is sadder out of the woods is louder and you know it's it is incredible but the things that are changing the most is her voice. She has a more mature voice. She is arguably a better singer and she would admit that herself. She did a lot of uh, vocal training throughout her career because she was um, taking kind of a dig back at critics who said that she couldn't really sing. Um, some of it is more acoustic. I With 1989, which is a more recent release, um, I can't help but feel that maybe her energy is dwindling a little bit because she's not just releasing old albums she's also making new material yeah that's some undertaking isn't it she's doing her back catalogues she's now releasing new songs and I know this because my nine-year-old is a Swifty and we've been told that her whole family have to call ourselves Swifties now and I have no idea where she's heard about Taylor Swift because she's not on social media but she is obsessed with her and I have heard lots of the new music and it all kind of some of it sounds a little bit country so is she going back to her roots yeah, so the interesting thing that she did during the pandemic when she released uh, Folklore and she released Evermore was she paired up with um, Aaron Dresner from The National. And again, she also surprise released these albums, which again was kind of, um, I know Beyonce does that quite a lot and you two forced that upon us once upon a time. Um, but she um, went a more folkier route and the, the music is significantly sadder. 
it's perhaps a little bit more intellectual than what we've been used to. So there, there's a great more, um, far more considered music that I would say. It's not just about kind of like great hooks and melodies. It's it's very kind of, kind of there's a literary style to her music now. And her most recent album, Midnights, it's that kind of nice marriage between big pop hits and the folk folkier sound and then just a little bit of country. So I don't know if it would be possible for Taylor to go back to being a fully fledged country star because she's just crossed over too far. And why would she? She's got uh, different audiences tuning into her for different reasons. Yeah, and those audiences are global. She has a massive eras tour happening and she's just swept through the world, hasn't it? She's received a bit of criticism, though, for the price of her gig tickets. I, for one, can vouch for that. I couldn't even attempt to pay the amount that was being asked for the tickets for those gigs at the time. It's a real money-making venture for her now, isn't it? Yeah, so um, the Washington Post has reported that Swift is taking home 85% of the revenue generated by this global era's tour. And then Forbes, they got the figures, Forbes reported that at each stop, each night that she has performing, she is personally earning between 10 and 13 million. So she currently has 146 scheduled shows. She might be adding more to that. So that is huge, unfathomable money. Why does she need that amount of money? <laughs> That's in like as much as I love the kind of artistic creativity of it all. Why does, she, why does she need so much money? But anyway, she keeps doing it. It's amazing, really. She is pushing the boundaries, isn't she? Because when you think of it in the last 20 years with streaming and that kind of thing, you've, you have the likes of the Rolling Stones and all of the older bands having to gig, 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 because that's how you make your money. But she's taken all of that to the next level. Taken to the next level. And then an interesting thing with the power of the Swifties as well, the the pre-sale of these t- tickets for just the North American leg of her tour, um, they broke Ticketmaster, but still 2.4 million tickets had been sold. It's the most amount of tickets have been sold in an artist in a single day. Crazy. But... Ticketmaster were brought sort of into a dispute because they were accused of kind of um, deceit and monopoly, um, kind of a market monopoly. And then this made it to the US Congress. Like people were just, um, they were just trying to get some transparency around the kind of merger of Ticketmaster and the kind of the live event uh, company, which is Live Nation Entertainment. Um, Like Joe Biden even kind of got involved in it as well. And it's to kind of terminate these like junk fees, the additional fees, because when these tickets went on sale, we weren't aware of how much they would cost. So you, she also did this pre-registration thing. So we had to register, get her code. You couldn't buy a ticket unless you had this code. Um, but even if you got the code, you didn't necessarily get a ticket. You didn't necessarily get into the queue. It, it was a mess. Like, you know, I, I was the only a friend in my group to get the code. And we were all like... It's like getting Glastonbury tickets, like you need to have Excel sheets. Um, It needs to be all hands on decks. You need to have laptops, phones. You need to have every screen available. But, you know, if you're the parent of a Swifty, you don't really care as much. But you have to explain to like a nine year old, a five year old be like, sorry, we couldn't. But how, how do you even explain that? So that's that's a whole other thing. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way ticket selling is going. Um, A similar thing happened with Olivia Rodrigo's tour where you had to get a registration code. And kind of a particular thing that I find confusing about it is, so I'm a wheelchair user and to there's only a limited amount of accessible seating um, in every single venue. And I just wonder how with a code, how can you guarantee that enough disabled people are going to get the codes to guarantee that those um, those seats, the viewing platforms will be allocated to the right people. So there isn't a huge amount of transparency around the ticket selling process. Um, so that's one issue but then also the prices are just so huge I know people who have accidentally spent a grand on tickets because 
the way that it's all drilled out, it's kind of it's playing with our adrenaline um, and people will just get this enormous case of FOMO if they don't get the tickets. So they're like, oh, OK, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll splash out. I guess it comes down to supply and demand, doesn't it? And there was an almost hysteria around at the time of the ticket sales. Do you think, Louise, that their wider criticism is fair around the film and the albums being re-released? It's all part of brand Taylor Swift now, isn't it? Yeah, like it's it's very hard to know the the point of what's too much you know again i'm not a billionaire i don't know if i like do i need another million do i need it's very hard to know what these big money earners are seeing other than just dollar signs and it does seem like a lot and i i do fear that we're maybe entering into another oversaturation point of taylor swift because uh you know we've bought the re-releases we've heard the new songs uh, we've gone to the cinema and again, there was a limited release as well. I think it's out of the cinemas this weekend. So there was, again, there was panic to see that. And then like the tour hasn't even come to Europe yet. Like that's not starting until next year. So we have a whole year of this um, still happening. But again, interestingly enough, um, she might be changing the way that concerts are displayed to the world. Um, so her the Eras movie that was um, a partnership between AMC and it, kind of a, a film distribution deal. And Beyonce is now doing a similar thing where um, she Taylor was the first and then Beyonce, she is also releasing her Renaissance tour, which has just completed in Europe and North America. Um, so that's going to be, I think that's released in December in America, but in January we are going to get the Renaissance tour on our cinema screens. So maybe maybe during if they weren't coming to Europe I would understand that and in the post-pandemic world maybe they would be doing that just to you know make their lives a little bit easier attend to people who are still a bit kind of nervy about COVID there's different different reasons for it but um, well, I, for one, am grateful for the film because it was a nice consolation prize to junior Swifties to say, look, we'll be able to bring it to the cinema to see this and you don't have to worry about going to see her live. Yeah. And it's and and like Barbie, it's event cinema. So some people are actually crediting now Barbie has a huge role to play in this, but a lot of people are crediting Taylor Swift for kind of getting this kind of new resurgence in cinema going. And notoriously, this time of year is quite difficult for like um t- for cinema box offices. And now there's just this massive resurgence in it. A number of big films had to change their release dates because of Taylor Swift, including Priscilla, the film about Priscilla, <laughs> Priscilla Presley. Like you would think that that would be a film that would just absolutely wipe out at box office. But no, the Elvis dynasty is afraid of Taylor Swift. Oh, that pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Uh, finally, Louise, she's arguably the biggest artist in the world right now, as we've discussed. So do you think she's now the most powerful? It's beginning to look a little bit like that. Uh, yeah, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said it's Beyonce. But the difference between Beyonce and Taylor Swift is that Taylor Swift has chart hits. Beyonce is more critically acclaimed. Um, she Her albums are far more complex their uh, production is next level but she doesn't really have the single hits the way that Taylor Swift does so and the fact that Taylor was first with the cinema our film distribution deal and Beyonce followed that seems to me a kind of a changing in the power status because Beyonce was always the pioneer Beyonce was always the one who was kind of breaking down the walls but 
Taylor Swift has done incredible things in terms of changing um, streaming uh, royalties for artists. Now, a lot more could be done on that. Not, I think also I think the streaming deals have become less favorable to artists in, in recent weeks. Um, she's changed the way that we purchase albums. A lot of people are claiming that she has added to the resurgence of vinyl um, vinyl purchasing again. And then she's changed the way that we buy our concert tickets and go to concerts. And the thing is, it, this isn't a concert that, that you would have seen 10 years ago. It is a big production. So you're you're not going to be, you're not, well, I, I don't know about the t- thousand euro tickets, but if you're spending your 120 euro ticket, which is a lot of money on a ticket, you're probably going to be getting your values worth there. So, and it, it is unfortunate that with all of this big spending and just more and more and more, I just, I feel sorry for the Swifties who are being left out because not everybody has the finances to buy the tickets, to buy the vinyls, to buy the whatever. I've heard of people who are traveling across Europe to see her. I don't even know how much that costs. But like, again, this tour is doing a lot for the tourism economy as well. So everybody's happy. Everybody's kind of riding the coattails of Taylor Swift's uh, success because she's always been business savvy and thankfully the music hasn't really suffered as a result. Yeah, she won't be going anywhere anytime soon and I'm sure the Swifties are delighted and everyone else, well, I guess you can't take it from her. She does know how to write a good pop song. Look, thanks so much, Louise, for your time today. Thank you very much. What What a thrill it was. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie with the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Louise Bruton for joining us today. You've been listening to The Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.